as you guys remember, there was a family who was heading down to Moab because there was a famine in Bethlehem. And it did not work out well. All the men, the husband of Naomi died, and then her two sons died. They had married a Moabite woman, which wasn't right. It wasn't right for them to leave the promised land to go to Moab. But they finally hit the bottom. And Naomi said, I've got to go. Gals, go back to your homes in Moab and find Moabite husbands. And God bless you. Have a great life. But Ruth, as you remember, would not leave her and said, hey, beautiful, beautiful poetry. Um, your, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you go, I'll go. Where you lie, I'll lie. And if anything but death separates us, it's not going to happen. <laughs> Nothing is going to separate us until death. Beautiful words, often quoted at weddings, but it's actually Ruth to her mother-in-law. But uh, those words do work really well. And uh, so they head back to Bethlehem, and, and she says, man, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasantness. Call me Mara, which means bitterness. And she says four different ways, God's hand was against me. The whole time, I wasn't where I was supposed to be, doing what God wanted me to do. As soon as I got out of his will, the blessings were gone. And she thought they were gone for good. But she's going to discover as she comes back into the promised land, you know, as Chuck Smith used to always say, you want to live under the spout where the blessings flow out. She was back under the spout. And even though it was hard for her as a widow and possessor of nothing, being a woman in this culture was not a good thing. And then with a Moabite daughter-in-law, boy, that, that had to make things rough in this Jewish country, in this Jewish culture. But um, the Lord began to bless. And, and Ruth goes out to find a field, just so happens to find Boaz's field, who actually, as we're going to discover, is her kinsman redeemer, or her Goel. And um, he says, hey, I know what you're doing for Naomi. Bless you. And stay in, our, stay in the field. And he said, hey, I don't want you to be with all of the the poor other widows and orphans and fatherless. I want you to be next to my employees, the ladies. Hang out. You're protected there. You're going to be um, blessed there. And, and he told his men, drop a little extra and, and make sure she goes home with a lot. And she did. She did very well um, in that time. And when Naomi heard that she was in Boaz's field and had such a prosperous first day. She then says, oh, God, God is with us. God's blessing is on us. That was surely the providential hand of God leading you to that field. Well, the harvest season's been going on. They've been harvesting the barley. It's been weeks going on. And, and Ruth is seeing Boaz, and Boaz is seeing Ruth in this setting of harvest time. But that harvest time was ending. And so her contact with Boaz 
in a reasonable venue was going to be lost because if he was, she was with him and him with her, then the rumors would start flying in this small town and quickly it would become something that was negative rather than as it is now positive. So Naomi is, is doing the math. And in chapter 3, verse 1, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you? In the old King James, it translates it there, rest. Will I not seek rest, security for you, that it may be well with you? Now Boaz, whose young women you were with, is he not our relative? So as these weeks have been going on, you've been developing this relationship. He's given you a, uh, a status there um, and a place of blessing. And I, I'm so glad about that. But this thing really should move to the next level. And uh, I'm going to be your matchmaker. Matchmaker, matchmaker. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move this thing ahead. And so I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a plan, and, and I'm going to need you to follow this plan. Now, remember, as we're going to see definitely some tonight, for sure in the final week in chapter 4, that really this is a picture of Christ and his bride, or Christ and the church. And uh, our peace, our security comes as we pursue our Goel, as we seek out our Redeemer. And Naomi is saying, you need to come to a place to have security, rest. And that's going to be found in your Redeemer. So I need you to seek out the Redeemer. I need you to make efforts to connect with that Redeemer. And of course, in the New Testament, where is it we get that place of rest and peace? Romans 5, 1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Goel, through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Boaz, is he not our relative? And the word Goel is going to be used here. As a matter of fact, this word Goel is going to show up ten times in this tiny little book, of 85 verses. And she's asking, is he not a potential Goel? He's a relative. This word Goel is used 104 times in the Old Testament. It's actually referred to in different scenarios. Uh, one of the scenarios, I'm not going to do exhaustive on it tonight, but some that you might be familiar with, and I think the ones that are the most important the first one would be buying back a family's land. So remember when they, they go into the promised land, the 12 tribes get 12 giant areas of the country. But then each tribe would section that off into each family. And that plot of ground you got was yours perpetually. It was for you, then for your kids and their kids and their kids and their kids. And it was never to go to anybody else's family but your family. And, of course, in that, you, you had different problems. 
if there was death going on and then poverty happened, they, they might have to need the cash, so they'll sell their field, but their field wasn't sold permanently. It was really, we would call it a lease. And in the law, it built in what was called the year of Jubilee. Every 50 years, everything restarted. All debts were paid off. So you really needed to say, you know, how close are we to the day of Jubilee or the year of Jubilee before I buy the property? Because there may only be 10 years left. But if the year of Jubilee just happened and I buy a field, oh, I got it for 50 years. But if you were not aware of what's going on, you might think you're buying the field, but next year is the year of Jubilee and you're going to lose it. So it was only for that 50 years. But in the midst of that, a guy who has bought the field, a kinsman, redeemer, a goel could come and say, hey, you paid $100,000 for that, and I'm giving you $100,000. It goes back to our family. And, and he had no rights uh, to hang on to it. He had to sell it back to the family. So there was always that caveat that was there. So one is if uh, an extended family member finally, after a couple of years, lost touch and, and said, hey, you guys lost the land? Oh, I had no idea. And they could go and purchase the land and give it back to the family or uh, reestablish it back uh, to them. We find this in, in explained in Leviticus 25, verse 23 to 25. Also in Leviticus 25, it tells us about the same thing if it happens in slavery. Things can get so bad, you got to sell your children into slavery, or you got to sell yourself into slavery. Or it could happen that you became a drunk, and you didn't plant your field, and your family went into poverty. They could take you and put you into slavery, and your family went with you. Now, don't, don't think of it as slavery as was in our country here in America. The actual slavery of the Bible especially of a Jew, was um, really a tender place to be because it was required that only certain elders could own slaves, but when you came into the, the family as a slave, you were basically a part of that family. And it was governed by everybody watching how you cared for them. And there was tons of stuff. One is they had to care for you as their own child, Two, they had to keep wages for you that they would give you at the end of it. The, the length of time was seven years. After seven years, your slavery was over. But you would get your seven years of salary. <laughs> Boy, anybody want to be a slave? Man, that, so you're taken care of. You have no bills. You have nothing. You just do whatever the slave owner says, working on the field or whatever. And then you get seven years of salary. Plus, you would get seed for your field. You would get oxen. He set, you were set up royal after seven years. You were starting not at zero, having to dig up and see the slavery in our country. When slavery ended, the slaves were worse off than when they were slaves because they, they couldn't own property. They couldn't be freemen, really. They, they were now destitute without being able to, to work. It was, it was even worse, but not this slavery. And often what would happen is a slave wouldn't want to stop being a slave. 
And so they had to make a footnote where the person, when it was time for them to leave, would go to the front porch and hang on to uh, the, the front porch uh, pillar of whatever it was and say, I will not go. I love my master. You have to, those are the words you have to say. And this is where I'm the most prosperous, under submission to him. When I'm on my own, I'm not outside of that submission. I don't do so well. But when I'm submitted unto my master, and this is why Paul called himself a bond slave. Well, that person would then have the master come and they would make a hole in their ear and put an earring in it. And that person would become a bond slave. Paul said, I'm a bond slave of Christ. And in the community, it wasn't a negative. It's you are a slave for your entire rest of your life because you made it so. Not because somebody forced you into it. You willingly said, I want to be under this person's care, submitted to their authority till the day I die. Interesting. But if a person was two years into this or three years into this, uh, a kinsman could come and, and buy you, pay whatever was the, the amount that you owed people or um, the amount that was owed to this master, and then you could be set free. The third thing, which is a very unusual thing, it's called the avenger of blood. Now, understand, when... when God brought the children out of Israel and brought them into the promised land. A lot of the laws weren't laws God wanted. They were laws of concession. In other words, he could bend the branch so far, but if he bended it too far, it would snap. And what would be the snapping? The children of Israel would just leave. They're just saying, hey, count me out as a Jew. I'm moving, I'm moving out of the promised land. There's just too many rules here. It's too heavy. And so they, they, out of permissiveness, God gave them the ability to do things that he didn't want. One of them was slavery. But again, I just explained to you what the law said about slaves. So nobody was oppressed as a slave. And another was polygamy, having more than one wife. The time we get to the New Testament, the Jewish culture didn't do that. Why? Because if you read the law... If you have more than one wife, when you die, who inherits your stuff? The community decides. What do they, how do they decide who gets what? Well, the oldest son gets everything, but it's not the, necessarily the oldest son of his. It's the oldest son of the least loved wife. Her son got everything. So I've got five wives, and this one here, I wish I hadn't married her. Well, her kids are going to get everything. So again, God is quite funny, but he's quite brilliant. And, and this is what he did. But again, as we, we get to the New Testament, it, it says, hey, if you have more than one wife, you can never be in leadership in the church. They, they said, hey, the law says we can divorce. That was another thing. And, and, and Jesus says, Yes, the law gives permission to do that. But that was never God's desire or design. God put Adam and Eve together for life. 
And so there shouldn't be divorce. That was the Lord's take on it. But yet it was in the law. You could do it. But yet it just was because the law had out of concession given permission for those things. It wasn't what God wanted. And here was one of those things. In the Eastern culture at that time, if you had a loved one that died accidentally, the family had to come and kill the person who accidentally killed them to save family honor. Again, this doesn't make sense. So two best buddies are out chopping down a tree. And the one buddy with the axe gets a big thing and he flies back and, oh, he hits his buddy right in the head accidentally. Or the axe head flies off and hits his buddy in the head and kills him. What does the buddy do? Go into town and tell people? No. Because even though that was his best buddy, even though that was an accident, this dead man's family, to keep family honor, has to kill you. So what the Lord put together was cities of refuge. And if you got to a city of refuge, you had to live in that city, sort of a prison, if you would. And you, could, you couldn't leave that city until the high priest died. When there was a change in high priest, your prison sentence was over, and you could leave the city of refuge. But the city of refuge is just a regular city. You'd bring your family and live there. But again, you would sense you weren't with your family, and you, you were confined, even though it wasn't a horrible confinement. It was, it was bizarre. And so this is one of the responsibilities of the avenger of blood was the goel um, to kill this man unless he fled into a city of refuge. So that was one of the goel jobs. And then the fourth one we're going to talk about, which is the one that applies to tonight. It's found in Deuteronomy 25. And this is if a family, a, a man dies, his brother is to marry his wife and to raise up kids to his name, again, for the family plots, for the various portions of land. And if his brother died and he had no kids, then who would get the land? This is the thing. You need, he needs a child raised up in his name. If there wasn't a brother, then it just sort of went down the line of succession. You know, first cousins, second cousins, sometimes uncles. Well, in Deuteronomy 25, verse 5 through 10, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, perform the duty of the husband brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son, which she bears, will succeed in the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. But if a man does not want to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate to the elders. This is important. And say, my husband brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. But if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, spit in his face, and answer and say, 
So it shall be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house. And then that man has a name change. His name from that point forward shall be called in Israel, the house of him who has his sandal removed. So the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, was responsible to safeguard the persons, the property, the posterity of the family member. And this was an obligation. Henry Morris, in his commentary, says this. Words from the root GL are used with a variety of meanings in the Old Testament. But the fundamental idea is that of fulfilling one's obligation as a kinsman. We have an example of this back in Genesis before the law. So this was something that was cultural before the law. And you might remember Judah, the house of Judah, the lineage of David, but way back um, in, in Genesis 38, 6, and 7, uh, he had a, his oldest son whose name was Ur, and he married a girl named Tamar. And Judah, Ur was wicked, the firstborn son, and the Lord killed him. And then we go on in Genesis 38, 8, and 9, and so Judah, the dad, says to Onan, his brother, go into your brother's wife, marry her, and raise up uh, uh, heir to your brother. And Onan knew that the heir would not be his. And he came to pass when he went into his brother's wife that he emitted on the ground, lest he should give an heir to his brother. So it sounds like he was equally evil <laughs> as his brother Ur. Neither Ur nor Onan were men of God or men of character. Well, just to tell you how the story ends up, Judah won't give another son to her. And he sees, she sees, wow, it's time for me to get married. Of course, it would have been a much older woman to a much younger son, but he, what Judah said, I'm not going to do it. And so Tamar dressed up like a prostitute. And Judah walked by going, hey, this is pretty interesting out here in the middle of nowhere and you know I'm just with the sheep and why not and and he paid her with his staff and a ring and of course face was covered and and he had sex with his own daughter-in-law he she he didn't know it so Tamar in time shows she's pregnant and Judah says have her put to death and she says hey just to let you know um whose baby this is take the staff and the ring to Judah. And then he realized, oh, um, I am, I'm the one who impregnated my daughter-in-law. Which is interesting, because when we get to Matthew, we have her named in the lineage of Jesus. You've got Tamar, who pretended to be a prostitute, tricked her father-in-law into sex with her to have a child, and that child, through Tamar, was the lineage of Judah that would reach the Christ. After that was Rahab, a literal harlot of Jericho, a cursed people, completely wiped out. And then after that, you got Ruth, this Moabitess. And then later, you're going to have, through her great-grandchild, David, with a bride Bathsheba, out of an adulterous relationship, and she was a Hittite, another cursed people. 
Do you, do you see what we don't have in this lineage of David and Jesus? Too many Jews, not a lot of them. They become counted as Jews, but it, it's, it's really, really interesting because it's important that we see that from the beginning, it was always God's plan to reach all peoples on the earth. When he called Abraham, one of the first things out of his mouth, whoever blesses you will be blessed, whoever curses you will be cursed, because through your seed, singular, interesting, all the nations or all the people groups of the world will be saved. And Paul picks up on Galatian and said, notice he didn't say seeds. He said seed, singular, referring to the Messiah. Well, the qualifications of a goel in this situation would be, one, he needs to be an actual blood relative. Number two, he had to be able. He had to have enough wealth, if you would, to be able to redeem. And then third, he would have to have a willing heart to want to redeem. Boy, how picture perfect this is, seeing Jesus in this kinsman redeemer. Let's take a look at Jesus' qualifications real quick. Is he a blood relative? Well, Jesus came in the flesh and blood. You guys know these verses. 1 Timothy 2.5. There is one God and one mediator between God and men. The what? Man. Christ Jesus. When I teach through 1 Timothy, people are always like, what? I don't get that. Because he's God. Here, it sounds like they're, they're sort of putting Jesus down. Saying he's only a man. Well, he's also God, but... The point is, is we would not have a Goel if he wasn't a blood relative, if he wasn't of flesh and blood, so to speak. In Philippians 2, 7, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men. Hebrews 2, 14, and as much as there is, as the children are, have partakers of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same Hebrews 2.11, for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. For all eternity, Jesus is going to be in human flesh, redeemed human flesh, but he's in forever in human flesh. In 2 John 1.7, for many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. The Gnostics did not believe it were possible for Jesus to come in human flesh because they said all material things are inherently in and of themselves evil. And therefore, Jesus couldn't actually come in flesh because he would be evil. But no, he came in sinful flesh just like yours and mine. When Satan tempted Christ, Turn this rock into bread. You see, had Jesus done that in his own power, he wouldn't have been like you and me. He had to say no. I, I, it's essential that I live all 33 years on this earth without any advantage. In John, it says 12 times, I do nothing of myself. Only as I hear the Father speak do I speak. Only as I see the Father do do I do. 
Of myself, I do nothing. And then what does he say? Hey, the works I do, you can do, and even greater works. How? Because I was 100% man. I had no advantage over you. I simply had faith, and I had an obedience to my Father. And the Holy Spirit came into me and gave me the power And so now you can do the works as you are submitted in obedience to the Father. And you're walking in the Spirit. God's Father, the Father, just like he spoke to me, can speak to you. And I can speak to you. And the Spirit can speak to you. You're at a greater advantage that I go. It's better that I go away. It's actually to your advantage that I go away. Secondly, with Jesus, is he able to redeem? We know that he is in flesh and blood, and because he was 100% of human flesh, he could be a substitute for man. Because he was 100% God, all that he did was eternal. Is he able to redeem? In 1 John 1, 7, But if we walk in the light as he is in light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, what? Cleanses us from all sin. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by the traditions of your fathers. Peter's talking to the Jews. But with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without spot and without blemish. Yes, Jesus redeemed us from all our sins. He cleansed us because he came into human flesh and as the lamb of God, his blood was shed and put upon the mercy seat in heaven, and our sins are forgiven. Is he willing to redeem us? Boy, I had to really get rid of a lot of verses on this. There's too many of them. Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us a child is born, unto who? Us a son is given. Do we, do we realize that? That God gave us his son. God gave us his precious child, Jesus. John 3.16, God so loved the world, he what? Gave us his only begotten son. Sounds to me like he was very willing. Matthew 1.21, and she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Yeshua, God our salvation. For he will what? Save his people from their sins. Mark 10, 45, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and what? To give his life a ransom for many. Ransom, to buy us out of slavery, to redeem us. Titus 2, 14, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Yes, Jesus is our Goel, and he is willing to be our Goel. Well, finishing up in the end of verse 2, the second part of verse 2, reading right through to verse 5. In fact, he is widowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Therefore, wash yourself, anoint yourself, put on your best garment, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make for yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Good note. Don't get in the way of us eating and drinking. Especially when there are donuts involved. Don't get between a fat man and his donut. You, 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 it could be deadly. 
Anyway, verse four. And then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies. You shall go in, uncover his feet, lie down, and he will tell you what you should do. And she said to her, all that you say to me, I will do. So she's having to go and be a little secret agent, isn't she? I'm going to get extra dressed up here. It sounds like it's maybe one of the last nights that the, the, the grain is getting taken away from the sheaf. You know how they do that? They, they run over it with a hard card or they bang it out. There's different ways of doing it. But the, the, the chaff will blow away and the grain, in this case barley, will fall to the ground. And then they put it up in, in, in bags and get it sealed up to sell it or use it, however, whatever they're going to do. So they're just about done with the whole harvest and, and, and getting the chaff and the wheat or the barley and the, and the chaff apart from each other. So, you know, you don't know exactly where he's going to end up laying down because they're outside. And, and pretty much they, they wore their blankets in their robes. They would just take their outer robe off and that would become their blanket. And uh, they'd maybe have some other fabric they'd make into a little pillow there. But they might just sleep wherever. So you need to change what you're wearing. I think she was probably still wearing her mourning outfit because she was a widow. It would have been disgraceful for her not to. I don't know how long it would have been at this time to continue to wear the clothes of mourning. I, did, I had a couple, I had a family in our church in San Diego who were from uh, Nigeria and, and Prince. He got cancer and um, through a long, very painful process, he died. And his wife, Stella, and their three kids, amazing, amazing people. And um, anyway, she contacted me um, just about a couple of weeks before a year to the anniversary of her husband's death. And she said, I need you to perform something for me. Because in our Nigerian culture, on the one-year date, I, the, the wife can become available again. And the way we would do that is the elders of the church with the kids would come together and, and, and make that announcement and then lay hands on us and pray for us and for God's blessing in the future. And at that point now, I can, I can begin no longer being a widow. And I thought, man, that's really smart, you know? Um, and uh, protection on, on every level. So I, I don't know how long, but it's basically, you know, get the best dress you have, bathe yourself, which they didn't do all the time in those cultures. You know, when I, I go to Europe for years, when the Iron Curtain came, you know, Girls didn't shave and nobody had deodorant. Didn't never even thought of using it, and uh, and uh, you'd get onto a crowded train or a crowded bus, and uh, you would smell the bo, and uh, we we would call it smelling European, and but you know after you know the the deodorants and everything came to to some of those countries. They, they used them, and they didn't like them. It didn't feel healthy to them. It felt like they were clogging up their pores. And, and, you're, and, and they actually said, I, I sort of like the smell. 
you know, I don't know. It's, I've smelled it all my life, and I, and I, I sort of like that B.O. smell. It doesn't smell bad to us. I guess that would have to be true to some degree, right? I mean, if you're walking through the old dirt roads and all the horses and donkeys and camels are pooping everywhere and you just sort of shovel it to the side, I mean, you're just sort of used to that smell, right? That's why I always think in those time movies when people go back to 1700, I think as soon as they got there, they're, you know. (laughs) I don't think they can handle the smell. But I, I don't think people were walking around feeling hygienic. But I'll tell you what, over there they got oils. And these oils, you put them on your skin, they'll stay there for days and days, and they're very amazing smelling. You know, with, with Jesus, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And I asked one of the guys in the Navy who was going to Saudi Arabia, and I said, man, I'd love you to bring me back a little vial of oil of frankincense, a little vial of myrrh, uh, if you could do that. And he called me up from Saudi Arabia, and he said, there's a tiny little vial that you might get like 20 drops out of. It's a 1000 bucks. You still want it? I'm like, no, 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 no. He said, I can get you some little solid stuff of frankincense and myrrh, and you, it'll smell for years and years. And, uh, and, and that was whatever it was, 15, 50 bucks. I don't remember. I was like, yeah, that'd be great. And I still have it and love to uh, smell it. It, it. They do have some amazing oils. So smell good, look good, feel good, and, uh, you know, put your best foot forward. And then just sort of be in the background observing things as the men are working hard, and then they all have this big giant mill, and, and um, they're, they're full and satisfied, and they go to sleep, and they worked hard, they're going to get a good night sleep. And when that happens, after he's been asleep, you go and take your robe and put it over his feet. Now, this may sound like she's being a little too forward here, or may even sound in our culture, everything's sexual, so may even sound sexual. Not at all. She is at his feet to show submission. Feet have a lot of nerve endings in them, don't they? Feels so good to get your feet rubbed. But also, they're sort of the lowly part of your body. They're not something that you give glory to, like your hair and your face and your ears and so forth. And boy, we, we, we can just go through the scriptures and look at sandals. One time I heard Chuck Missler, he said, I'm going to do an entire study on sandals. And in it, he preached the gospel. It was amazing, an amazing message when you do that. He said, you can do that almost any topic. And we start to think about this a minute. Joshua, you guys go into the promised land. And wherever your sandal steps, what? That'll be your land. The feet, a place of possession, a place of of ownership in some cases in this case. We go to the New Testament. What did they do to Jesus? (laughs) Right before they crucified him. 
They took everything off, including the sandals. The father of the prodigal son wanted to make sure before anybody saw him, before he got into town, that he had sandals. And it sounds like he didn't because once you were a servant, they didn't want you to wear sandals to show that you are lowly and a person that doesn't have position or possession or power. So they wanted their servants barefooted. But Jesus' sandals were taken off. And then what happened to him when he went through the streets? They spit in his face, didn't they? Interesting, when we, we start to tie these things together and, and, and we begin to realize that, that Jesus, unlike this situation here, was not being sought out by the bride. He was being dishonored by the Jewish people as a person who was unwilling to be a Goel, a person who was not an honorable person is how they were treating him. No sandals on his feet, spitting in his face. But then the Gentile bride (laughs) began to seek him out. The Gentile bride is seeking to Boaz. She's the one who's pursuing him. This, this is pretty cool. Why is she pursuing him? Because Naomi helped her see that she had a position, that she had a possibility, that she, in this place of possession, could go and ask him to be the Goel. And in Naomi, in this case, I, I see it as sort of a picture of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's in the world, convicting him of sin, righteous judgment. The Holy Spirit's leading us in all truth. And so she's going to the feet. Mary Magdalene was at the feet of Jesus, took a very costly oil and washed his feet with her hair. What was she thinking? How was that looking? Oh, the Pharisees, oh, this does not look good. But yet... We see it as such a precious thing, such a wonderful thing. Oh, I wish I could be Mary at the feet of Jesus. I wish I could be, my tears would fall upon his feet and my robe would be used to wipe him or if you had long hair to use your hair, a a glory, a precious possession to wash his feet. It's such a, a tender, beautiful moment here and, um, and Naomi says, yeah, when, when he realizes what's going on, he, he's going to understand what you're doing. And in essence, she was saying, I'm covering your feet, but what I really am asking is that you would take your robe and cover me, be my covering. That's really what's going on here. This is what was being asked. Well, in verse 6 and 7, So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. After Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was cheerful, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, and she, I love this, came softly, uncovered his feet, and lay down the warmth of her body next to his feet and using now her covering over his feet. Why was he outside 
with the grain because this is when the thieves would come. You guys might remember Gideon's story. Once all the grain was ready to, to be traveled with and sold, the Midianites would show up. The story with David, um, King David, uh, the Philistines were coming up and doing that. In 1 Samuel 23, he saved this, the city of Kaliah who had, of the Philistines who would rob him every year. So this was a time that you had to be with your produce, in this case, to protect it, to watch over it. So no doubt him and all his men, but not just leaving it up to his men and then blame them for not waking up. He was going to be there. He was taking the responsibility as well. But I love this. She came softly. She came tenderly. She came daintily, like girls can do. But also, it was a sign of humility, of submission. I love Peter writes in 1 Peter 3, verse 1 through 4. I wonder if he was thinking of Ruth, being a Jew himself, and thinking back. And for sure, he was thinking about Sarah. But he says, wives, if your husbands are stubborn and not obeying God, um, you don't try to get him back on the right track obeying God. You, without a word, just by him watching the conduct of your godly life. In verse 2, when they, he, the disobedient to the Lord husband, observes your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, or we would say reverence or respect. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging of the hair, wearing of gold, putting on fine apparel. Love verse 4, 1 Peter 3, 4. But rather let it be the hidden person of the heart with an incorruptible beauty. This is a beauty that never goes away. Boy, does physical beauty go away quickly. You got about 10 good years, 15 good years, and then... It's gone. You're, you're fighting to get it back. And hopefully you don't do a bunch of plastic surgery to try to get it back. But a beauty that never ends. The incorruptible beauty of what? A gentle and quiet spirit. Which is very, very, very precious in the sight of God. Well, in verse 8 now. It happened at midnight that the man startled and turned, him, turned himself. And, and there a woman was lying at his feet. And he said, who are you? And, and she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative or you are a goel. So at midnight, the man now is startled awake. Somebody's touching his feet, and maybe his toes were getting a little cold. I don't know. But he he's ate a lot and, and drank, and, and he's exhausted from a hard day's work, and his eyes are not so great, and he can't see what's happening. And he's like, what in the world is going on here? And, and she explains to him, um, I want you to put your covering on me, and be my Goel. And remember earlier, he uses that phrase in chapter 2, verse 12. Boaz, with his beautiful poetry. Ruth had her beautiful poetry in chapter 1. Boaz has beautiful poetry in chapter 2. And he says in verse 12, The Lord repay your work. A full reward be given to you by the Lord, a God of Israel, 
under whose wings you have come for refuge. I'm sure those words went deep into her heart. They were beautiful words. But now she comes and she says, yes, I am going to be under God's wings by being under your wing. Let's just stop there a minute. You know, Jesus made it clear, and in 1 John, this almost 100-year-old man, he, he, just, he just says, look, the reality of Christ is visible in you. If it's not visible in you, it's because it's not invisible in the heavens. If you go to church and say, I love God, but then you don't love your fellow man. Well, I love some of them. You need to love those who hate you, who mistreat you, who despise you. You're to love them. You know, the, the question is, why does God say to love our enemies? Because that usually covers our family members. <laughs> and those are the ones that are the hardest to, to love. Familiarity does breed contempt. That's true. But he, he makes it clear. Don't say, I'm submitted to God. But yet you're not submitted on earth. He, he, he says plainly, man, I just want there to be this spiritual reality in your life, Ruth, now that you've made the Jewish people your people and their God your God, now that you would see the reality of God's wings spreading over you and comforting you and healing you and blessing you and strengthening you. And she says, yeah, it's, it's a reality. And, and it, there wouldn't be a heavenly reality without an earthly reality. And as I'm submitted to you, Boaz, as my husband, that, that'll signify my submission to God that we can't see, right? If, you're, if, if God has an authority and you're not submitted to that authority, but you say, yet I'm submitted to this authority that I can't see, how would we know? Remember the guy is lowered through the roof. <laughs> they take off the roof and they lower the guy who's lame down in front of them. And Jesus says to the man, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisee's like, nobody can forgive sins but God. What are you doing? And Jesus said, which is, which is easier, which is harder? To say, take up your bed and walk, or your sins are forgiven. Well, it, it really depends. Now, I could say tonight, I want you guys all to know, because you came to church, this midweek study, you're all going to live two years longer than you would have lived. Can you prove me wrong? You really can't. Okay, so in the same way, obviously, it's harder to forgive a man of his sins because only God can do that. But did it really happen? So Jesus says, I'm going to do something in the physical world. And if what I speak that is a miracle, impossible in the physical world, but yet it happens in front of you, then you can know that which I said would happen in the spiritual world that you can't see 
also happens. So that you will know that the Son of Man also has been given that by the Father to forgive sins. Take up your bed and walk. It's always the case. In Mark 16, he says, when you go into the world and preach the gospel, signs and wonders would follow the preaching of the word. You want to see miracles? Go where Christ has never been preached before. And you'll see miracles. You'll also probably get put to death. But, uh, <laughs> but either way. So here, here, I just love this. And people say, well, that's my problem. I don't have a Ruth for a wife. I bet your wife is going to say, I don't have a Boaz for a husband. But wives, if you'll be that hidden person of the heart, God can turn guys into Boazes. Guys, if you'll be a Boaz, God can turn your wife into a Ruth. But where does it really come down to? We're going to study in Ephesians 5. It doesn't say, husbands, tell your wives to submit to you. It does not say that. Matter of fact, in Ephesians 5, it almost says, guys, put your hands over your ears. Wives, submit to your husbands, as to the Lord in everything. Just as you would to the church, just like the church is to Christ, so you be to your husband. The husband's not in that equation. It doesn't say, husbands, I want you to know so you can nag your wives and tell her what the Bible says. Submit to me. The Bible says so. That doesn't work. In the same way, ladies, put your hands over your ears. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loves the church. Gave himself up for her. Laid down his life to death. See, that's pretty much always the answer. Die to yourself. How did Christ get his bride? He died. When he died, then the power of God resurrected and he got his bride. How do we get our bride? We die. You Boazes, one of Ruth, die. Die to yourself. Be that man of God that you're supposed to be. And God will change your wife into a Ruth. You Ruths out there, the same goes for you. You be that hidden person of the heart, that gentle and quiet spirit that's precious in the eyes of God. We see her with this submitted heart, bold. She was bold. She, she did what Naomi said. That was, I'm sure, that, I'm sure that she had butterflies in her stomach, don't you think? I mean, this, this, this could go seriously wrong. There's a lot of ways this could go wrong, right? I mean, she, she had to be sort of in stealth mode. Wait till everybody's out, everything's quiet, sneak around, you know, and get there. And, and once she's at his feet and, and you know, there's, there's sort of a safe place. But until that time, there's a lot of things that go wrong. She was bold. And then she says poetically, but clearly, God's going to use you to answer your prayer. <laughs> As I'm under his wing, I would be under your wing. And then he would put his robe over her, signifying, yes, come under my covering. Clark says in his commentary, even to the present day, when a Jew marries a woman, he throws the skirt or the end of his talith over her to signify that he has taken her 
under his protection. You see, the Jews at the bottom of their robes had these little pieces of thread, blue typically, and those talus, which were reminded to obey God, those things would be dangled, and the end of the robe would be thrown over her, and it would basically be saying, under God and under my protection and authority, you're submitting. Ezekiel 7, 6, 16, 8, God speaking of his bride, the nation of Israel says, when I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed your time was a time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. So I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you. You became mine, says the Lord. So you're my Goel. I love chat verse 10 now. And he said, blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning and that you did not go after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you that you have requested for all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. Interesting. He is an older guy. She's a young, beautiful gal. He was actually not being bold himself because he thought, I, I don't know what she wants and I, I don't want her to get stuck. Now, he could have easily have said, hey, Ruth and Naomi, I'm the Goel. I want that beautiful young lady there to be my bride. Well, I don't know if she wants that. It doesn't matter what she wants. You're going to be my bride. I'm going to go tell the elders and we're going to get this done. Boy, that, that's a pretty horrible thing, isn't it? Happens in the Muslim world today. And it's, it's tragic. It's traumatic. But he, he was like, you know, I'm a lot older than her. She could do much better than me. There's richer people than me, younger people than me, richer, younger people than me. But now she comes boldly, but very traditionally in this culture, showing that, no, I, I want you to be my Goel. And I'm sure that his heart was greatly blessed. Interesting, he says the same words. A virtuous woman. Earlier, we saw this same phrase in chapter 2, verse 1. It was translated in our English, um, a man of great wealth. Boaz was a man of great wealth. But I showed you that almost everywhere else in the Old Testament, that's translated a man, a mighty man of valor, right? So Boaz was a mighty man of valor. Now, the same term is used of her. This word, hael, or hael. Interesting, now she's being called a hero in the Bible, a mighty woman of valor, so to speak. Interesting in Proverbs 31, verse 10. Solomon says of his mother, and easily he could have said of his great-grandmother Ruth, who can find a Hael? The same term. They translated in Proverbs 31, a woman of virtue, but it's the same term, mighty man of valor, or mighty woman of valor. Who can find these people of great bravery, boldness, and courage? Verse 12, 
Now it is true that I am a close relative of Goel. However, this is, there is a relative of Goel closer than I. Did you notice? Did you read between the lines there? He already checked it out. <laughs> he already had been thinking about it. He had already been, you know, working the, the genealogy pool there. And it's like, I'd love to, but oh, how do you know that? Man, that's interesting. Yeah, believe me. He has been wanting this badly, but he didn't pursue it because she was much younger. So he says, stay this night. And in the morning, there will be, uh, if he will perform the duty of the close relative, the Goel for you, so be it. Good. Let it be done. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. It wasn't safe for a woman to go out at night, but also... Um, he wanted her to leave in the morning, so it, it, didn't look any, it didn't look strange or there was any undercurrent. It would look very fine for her to be walking down the street in the morning in this culture. Well, verse 14 and 15, So she lay at his feet until morning. She arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Do not let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Also, he said, Bring the shawl that is on you and hold it. And when she held it, and measured six ephras of barley and laid it on her, and she went into the city. He says, don't tell anybody about it. Why? Because it could complicate things. Let, let me be the one to present this. I, I don't want it to come through any other door. Just let me be the one to talk about it. Don't, don't talk to anybody about it. it. It might complicate things. Well, verse 16, so when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, is this you? Is that you, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her. And she said, these six ephras of barley he gave me, for he said to me, do not go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Then she said, sit still, my daughter. You will know how the matter will turn out, for the man will not rest <laughs> until he has concluded the matter this day. Remember what the name Boaz means? Swiftly, quickly. And boy, he's, his whole life, he's been a guy when it's, there's a goal to be met, he's on it. But I love this. She sought out and said, would you be my Goel? And he's saying, man, if that is possible, if the law will allow it, I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it quickly. But you be at rest Why I work hard at this. Why is this so important? Because in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1 through 4, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel is preached to us, as well as to them, the Jews as well as the Gentiles. But the word which they heard, the Jews, did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter the rest. As he said, so I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The Jews, back in Numbers 14, who didn't cross the Jordan into the promised land. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. Powerful. Verse 4, for he spoke in a certain place on the seventh day is this way. God rested on the seventh day from all his works. So stop there just a minute. 
When was man made? He was created by God at the end of the sixth day. So man's very first day of life was entering rest, a day of rest. And he says several times there in the beginning of Genesis 2, God finished all his work. He he did all that he had done. He had done. He was going to do no more. It was complete. It was finished. But Adam and Eve now had to come into life and spend their time resting in the finished work of God. This is a picture. This is why I think personally he gave Naomi six Ephras. In essence saying to her, God got it all done on the sixth day. <laughs> and on the seventh day, we enter into that rest of the marriage, if you would. Well, in Hebrews 5, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 5 and 6, and again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. So the King James Version says unbelief, which I think is better. In verse 8 and 9, if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterwards have spoken of another day. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. Verse 10, for he who has entered his rest has himself also what? Ceased from his works as God did from his in creation. In verse 11 of Hebrews 4, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience, or your know, King James again says, unbelief. You see, when you truly believe Jesus did all the work, we can rest. When we believe that our husband is preparing a place for us, and he's going to come again and take us to himself, we can rest. But if we are not confident that he's going to complete all the work, but we need to help him out, and we need to try to be a good person and try to be religious and we're doing all these things to gain his approval, we are now not at rest. Rest means faith totally in God. And he basically says to Ruth, your work is done. You go home and rest. And Naomi says, listen, Christian, the Holy Spirit speaking to the Christian, listen, totally be at rest. He is going to do it, and he's going to do it swiftly, and it'll be happened quickly, that he's going to get the law taken care of. What did Jesus do? He, on the cross, took the law, it says in Colossians 2. He fulfilled the law for us. He's going to fulfill the law. He's going to complete the law. He's going to come and snatch her away to be his bride. Christ has completed the law. He has gone away and now when the Father gives him permission, he will come and we shall be his bride. Well, Lord, thank you for your word tonight. And we ask, Lord, that we would just continue to grow in the knowledge of you. And Lord, just like Ruth, Lord, we come to you at your feet. We come right now to you, Lord, and just want to be there submitted unto you loving on you, saying, Lord, we want to be submitted into your will. Put your garment over us. 
I love that song of Solomon. I'm my beloved and he is mine. His banner over me is love. We sense that tonight, Lord. Do a greater work in us and through us. I just encourage you tonight to pray out loud. Don't sit still. There's a time to be quiet and there's a time to speak. This is the time to speak. And so pray. And even if there's two of you praying at once, that's fine. Just It'd be better for people to be on top of each other and having to wait a minute and be a little awkward uh, interruption than, than wasting precious time uh, that we could be praying. And the Bible says when one prays, everybody's praying. We say amen. Yes, Lord, so be it, Lord. And so all of us can be talking out loud. All of us can be praying along in agreement. It's not the one person praying a separate prayer from you. No, they're praying for all of us. And then the next person's praying for all of us. And so we're all praying continuously, just one person in the body, where one body is at maybe out loud speaking, but we're all in agreement. Yes, that's for me too. Amen. Yes. And then the next person adds to that. 